0: So we think about eating and, and all of the things connected to, to sharing space with others as we eat. It made me think about a, a change that's underway right now in, in schools across our country. So one of the, the bright spots right now is that COVID seems to be relenting and mask mandates are um, you know, slowly subsiding again. And that means that more social engagement, more social activities are being restarted. And one of the the spaces or social areas that students around our country and even really around the world are are figuring out how to re-engage with is the school lunchroom. How many of you guys can remember being in the lunchroom as kids? Maybe some of you are still still eating there. Some of you are are students at our schools. The lunchroom is a, a challenging space to know how to navigate. And the hardest part about the lunchroom, right, is that moment when you get out of the lunch line, you have your tray, and you're standing there looking across the lunchroom, and you have to figure out where you're going to sit down, right? What table do you belong at? And there's there's an art to this, right? Because you have to figure out, you know, what table are you cool enough to be welcome to sit down at? Which table might you be welcome to sit down at, but might be kind of a a step down, a stain on your social reputation? And above all, you have to be careful not to approach a table where when you start to sit down, someone says, Ah, that seat's already taken. Thanks. Look for a different table. We're navigating the lunchroom because it's, it's a cause for social anxiety for many of us or it was when we were kids. And it comes down to where you belong, right? Where you feel like you can safely be yourself. Who you feel like you can be yourself with. Who will accept you. And so doing lunch, it turns out, is actually a pretty big deal. As we grow into adulthood, maybe we are are not required to share a table with others quite as frequently. But it still raises the question of of when we do that, who do we do that with? And the kind of anxiety that we see in school cafeterias, a similar kind of anxiety infiltrated lunch tables even in Jesus' day, if for slightly different reasons been reading a book in preparation for this series by a pastor named Tim Chester. And the book is called A Meal with Jesus. And, and he says a central question in the Judaism of Jesus' time was this. Who can I eat with? That was a significant question in the culture. Who can I eat with? And Chester says doing lunch was also doing theology. Doing lunch was doing theology. In other words, what you thought about God, who you thought God was, dictated who and how you chose to eat, who you chose to eat with and how you chose to eat. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at some of the reasons that was the case in Jesus' day today I want to kind of locate us and, and jump right into one of the, the sort of first lunchroom controversies that Jesus gets mixed up in in Luke's gospel. So I'd invite you to open to Luke 5. We're going to pick up in verse 27 in just a second. But the question I want to bring to this passage as we read it together this morning is this. How does the way Jesus eats express his theology? How does the way Jesus eats express his theology? What does it say about who Jesus thinks God is? What he says God is like? What does Jesus say in his actions about where God belongs in the lunchroom? Let me pray for us as we... (laughs) So I try to make sure the pulpit doesn't fall apart, and as I begin to teach this morning, let me pray. Lord, I give you thanks that your word comes to us as an invitation to feast, to be filled, to be welcomed, to be known around your table. And Lord, I I pray that as we feast on your word, that the words of my mouth as I preach through this text, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I've given you this, this reading plan through the book of Luke, and if you happened to pick it up last week, if you read through um, where we started on Wednesday of this week in Luke 4, if you read through the first bits of Luke 4, in the first half of Luke 5, before this passage. You'll see that there's sort of a pattern to to Jesus' activity in chapters 4 and 5. And it's one that that continues through the gospel. So, uh, back in chapter 4, Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He's come out of his time of testing in the wilderness. He's beginning his ministry. And when he gets into the synagogue, he's handed a, a scroll from the book of Isaiah... And he opens up to the passage where it says, The Spirit of God is upon me to bring good news to the poor, and freedom to the captive, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And after Jesus reads from those verses, he says, you know, in, in your midst, in, your, in, in this moment, this, this text is being fulfilled. In those verses in Isaiah, Jesus is giving us a foretaste of what his mission is going to look like. And who his mission is going to be with. So Jesus proclaims that in the synagogue in Nazareth. It almost gets him killed. He's driven out of the city and he goes to Capernaum. And in in the synagogue in Capernaum, he encounters a man possessed by evil spirits. And Jesus brings deliverance to that man. He goes uh, next to some some down and out fishermen in the same village, and he calls them to follow him. And then we're told from there he goes uh, to a neighboring village and he lays his healing hands upon a leper. And then from there he comes back to Capernaum, and uh, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus by some friends. And the pattern that emerges is that Jesus keeps collecting all of these people. This unusual entourage begins to follow him. And it seems like the the qualifying factor to be in Jesus' entourage is that you have to have issues, you have to be on the margins, you have to have some kind of of problem you're coming to Jesus with. Because that's part of Jesus' mission. And in today's passage, Jesus takes one step further. He goes to the edge of town and he walks up to a tax booth, a tax collecting booth on the outskirts of Capernaum. And that's where verse 27 picks up. Luke writes, after this, after Jesus heals a paralyzed man, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Levi. ...sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house... ...and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect... ...complained to his disciples... Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make friends of the bridegroom? Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. This is part of what what commentators call uh, one of the the controversy stories or sections in Luke. I like to think of it as one of Jesus' first lunchroom disputes. There are going to be a number of of arguments or debates that break out around tables for Jesus. And something about Jesus' table manners here is, is provocative, is problematic in his context. But before we get into the controversy of that, I want to back up just a little bit. And I want to think about how this whole encounter with Levi unfolds in the first place. Luke doesn't give us a lot of backstory in terms of of who Levi is prior to verse 27. We're simply told that Jesus goes after this man. Jesus is intent on adding him to his entourage of disciples. There's intentionality there. But what do you imagine Levi made of this encounter with Jesus? Jesus walks up to his tax collecting stand, and all Jesus says is, follow me. And then Levi gets up, leaves everything, and follows him. Now, lots of people have speculated about this, but it's, it's hard, at least for me, to believe that there wasn't some prior interaction, some sort of prior history or relationship before this moment. Last spring, I was watching some episodes of The, the Chosen with our small group, and one of the episodes depicts this, this scene, the calling of Levi, calling of Matthew in, uh, in, in striking fashion, but one of the things that it it made me begin to imagine or wonder about is whether Levi might have been hanging around Capernaum and and seeing Jesus interact with other people. If part part of those interactions informed this, this moment of calling here in verse 27. And specifically, it made me wonder, what if Levi was in the crowd or around the crowd just days before when Jesus heals the paralytic in his town. Right? If you want to look in your Bibles, it's in the verses just, just preceding 27 here. And Specifically, what, what came to mind, what I noticed in the passage, is that in that interaction with the paralyzed man, the first thing Jesus does before he heals him is he looks into the eyes of that man and he says, your are Sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Imagine if Levi heard those words. Imagine, even sort of vicariously, what that might have begun to start in, in, in the mind, in the heart of Levi. What it would like be like for him to hear those same words. Imagine what it would have been like for Levi to not only hear Jesus tell the paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven, but then to watch that same man rise to his feet and then begin to follow Jesus in a new life. Might that have hit a nerve for Levi? Could that have been, even in some small way, Jesus planting a seed in Levi's imagination that he was going to follow up with? a few days or a few weeks later. I think there's actually more that connects Levi and the paralytic than we might first notice. I think Luke has purposefully told these stories uh, in tandem here. Now, both of them have have different issues, but I would argue both of them are, are paralyzed by a kind of disease. They're stuck because of something that ails them. Of course, the, the paralytic man can't follow Jesus or, or would have trouble following, following him as a disciple because of a physical ailment. Now, he's paralyzed. He needs Jesus to address that situation for him, with him. Levi's presenting issue is more of a social issue problem. Right? He is on the outskirts. He's on the, the margins of, of his particular village because of the sins he's committed against the people that live there as a tax collector. But I think Luke knits these stories together because he wants us to know that Jesus has come to bring healing to both. And that the gospel actually speaks to our physical ailments. It speaks to our social isolations. It can bring both physical healing, it can bring repentance and renewal to our relationships as well. And so, after Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic in, in the first story, the next thing he does is he causes, uh, he, he commands the man to stand to his feet. So that the man can know that both with his body and also with his spirit, he's now free to follow Jesus. And when Jesus approaches Levi, a guy whose, whose obvious problem is his social sins that need forgiving, his social offenses that make him an outsider, Jesus does the same thing but in a different way. And calling Matthew to follow him. He's calling him into a life of repentance. He's causing him to leave behind the thing that would keep him stuck. Would keep him from a life of obedience. But he's also addressing the thing that would paralyze Levi. He's giving Levi an invitation as well to walk in a new way. And so Luke, I think, purposefully alludes to this connection in the way that he records Levi's response. Just like when Jesus spoke to the paralyzed man, and after those words, the man rises to his feet. When he speaks to Levi and says, come, follow me, Luke says, Levi got up on his feet, left everything, and walked with Jesus. And the first place that Levi's new legs take him is back home. And in verse 29, we're told that Levi commissions this great banquet on the same day for tax collectors and friends that that are part of his community. People that knew him even in his isolation, in his old life. And given Levi's means, this, this banquet might not have been such an unusual occurrence. What makes this particular meal unusual is that today, Rabbi Jesus is also reclining at the table with them. And Jesus isn't just there. Jesus is feasting in the food and the drink that's present. Let me invite you to imagine, when you, when you picture this meal How do you imagine Jesus sort of being in that space and interacting with these sinners and tax collectors? Is he he uncomfortable? Is he there because he knows he's supposed to be there? Or is he enjoying himself? Is he drinking and eating and laughing? Does he truly love being in the company of the people at that table? I think that's an important question for us to ask and check our assumptions. Well, Matthew, or or Levi, as he's called in this passage, hosts this big meal, but, but at the other end of the lunchroom, so to speak, at the other end of the village, at their own conspicuously clean and carefully guarded place of eating, we have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And somewhere, you know, after the meal breaks up, they find Jesus' disciples on the street. And they complain to them that that by choosing to eat with tax collectors and with sinners, they're compromising their spiritual credibility. They're sitting at the wrong lunch table. You don't belong there. You belong over here. As commentator David Garland in his commentary on Luke explains, the Pharisees as a group were committed to pursuing a mission for purity, particularly for Israel's purity. And they they did so with probably the best of intentions. Their assumption, the Pharisees' assumption, was that for God to be present among his people, to, to experience that kind of intimacy and connection and favor with God, They believe that God required purity from them as a people. Just like all of the the law requires the holiness and purity of the temple, the place of worship. Pharisees were not priests themselves, but they wanted to bring the purity of the temple, the holiness of the temple, into the, the lives of ordinary Jews. They wanted to bring that holiness into their homes. And so they believe that that sin... or or a lack of holiness, a lack of of ritual piety, was the reason that that God's judgment was being visited upon Israel. It was was potentially one of the reasons that the Romans were able to occupy them as as a country. And so their prescription, their remedy for this problem was what commentator David Garland calls salvation by segregation. If someone broke the law of God, if someone failed to uphold purity in their own life, then they should not be in your home. They certainly should not be around your table. They should not be found in your companions. Otherwise, you'd you'd be making yourself guilty by association. In a very real way, by, by sharing friendship or sharing space with those who are not pure, you could contaminate yourself. And so I think they thought the best way to get God to come and be with them in their homes, at their tables, was to control that table. It was about keeping the impurity out of that space. That's one strategy, to be in mission with God. We have to control everything. We have to make our lives right. We have to defend the borders, keep impurity out so that God will come be with us. What I think is interesting is is I would say Jesus and the Pharisees actually had a very similar mission, at least at at the the 30,000 foot level. They both were committed to bringing the holiness and the presence of God into the world and into Israel itself. But they, they reached profoundly different conclusions about two things connected to that mission. They had profoundly different conclusions about who the audience of that mission was. And they had profoundly different conclusions about the approach, the way that mission would be carried out. So I want to look at a couple of those things. First of all, for the Pharisees, the audience they assumed God was seeking in his mission right, were those who strove for righteous living. Those who were trying hard to get it right. Those who were keeping pure. Those who were doing the practices. Those who had good table manners, so to speak. So it didn't make sense to them. That somebody like Jesus, someone who they had heard teach and, and they know he knew the Torah, he could, he could preach the scriptures with authority, why would that same rabbi be sharing and drinking from Levi's wine cellar? Why would he be at that table? They thought Jesus had chosen the wrong audience. But Jesus challenges their assumptions in verses 31 and 32. He says this to them about audience. He says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am interested in an audience with those who need holiness. I'm interested in an audience with those I can bring my holiness to as a gift Michael Card who's a singer and songwriter has a devotional commentary on Luke and on this this particular passage he says I find it fascinating that Jesus does not actually reject the Pharisees distinction between the righteous and the sinner right meaning Jesus would acknowledge that, that the people around Levi's table have legitimate issues. There's real stuff in their life that needs to be dealt with. They are he, he's not denying they are sinners. But Card goes on to say it's only that when given the choice, Jesus chooses sinners. Those are the people Jesus wants to eat with. Question I would ask myself, is would Jesus want to eat with me? Would Jesus want to eat with you? And I think part of what what answers that question is, are we people that are trying to control the table that Jesus is going to eat at? Are Are we keeping out the impurity? And if so, Jesus might not want to be at that table with us or are we willing to let Jesus bring his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, bring repentance to our table because he sits down at it. Jesus wants an audience with sinners. Second second item where they disagree again is about the approach. And the Pharisees, I think, they're, they're still struggling to catch up with this new paradigm Jesus is, is throwing out. How could anyone prefer the company of sinners to the righteous? And so they, they look for sort of a different angle to attack Jesus. You look at verses 33 and 34. They suggest that Jesus should take a page from John the Baptist, that Jesus should take a page from the Pharisees themselves, and if he's going to be with all of these sinners, then at least emphasize these sort of external behaviors that, demonst- that, that, that demonstrate righteousness, right? Jesus, why aren't you more about prayer? Why aren't you more about fasting? If you at least would give your attention to those things, then maybe we, we could understand. We might be able to take you seriously. But what's with all of these banquets? What's with all of this eating and drinking and dining? But if Jesus had a different audience in mind than the Pharisees for God's mission, it shouldn't surprise us then that he also took a different approach to that mission, to enacting that mission. And so Jesus replies in verse 34 with a question. He says, Does it seem appropriate to you to go to a friend's wedding and to fast at the wedding feast? Right? What kind of person would do that? Right? Clearly, you don't understand the context of what's happening here. And Jesus knows fasting is, is a practice that God has given his people, but it's a practice that demonstrates lament. Fasting is a sign asking God to bring. Change. But Jesus says, I'm going to come eating and drinking because today is Israel's wedding day. Like today is the day that God has come to be with his people, to sit down at a table with them. Because most of those people would never think themselves worthy to come and sit at God's table. So God has chosen to come sit with them. And so I am going to go on eating and drinking. The mission of God, the kingdom of God, is for sinners. And Jesus says, the means by which that mission will be accomplished is through this long series of banquets and dinners. And I wonder if that's how we think about discipleship. Right? Does our model of, of mission and discipleship, does it leave space for, for the primacy of those two things, for sinners and for dinners? Is that what we think about when we do discipleship? Right? Do we assume that the people God wants to show up and bring his holiness to are people that are broken, people with real needs, people that don't have all the table manners in order? And do we assume that, that the practice of discipleship is as much about what we do in our homes and around our tables and our interactions with people out there as it is with what we do here at the church? I think Luke is going to keep revisiting this as we continue these next several weeks. But I want to finish by giving giving us two invitations. Oh, there we go. Two invitations to practice this. And the first is, again, what I, what I shared at the beginning of our time this morning, to, to take seriously sort of an acting and eating and drinking approach to discipleship. And in a really easy way, we're trying to make it as easy as possible to do that, is to, to sign up for one of these table groups. To just get in the habit of of having other people, other sinners, around our table with us, eating and drinking together. So if you haven't done that, please give it some serious thought. It's a way to practice, and I I think it will actually make these next few months of teaching more meaningful. The second and, and more immediate invitation is to invite you to come and be at the table Jesus has prepared himself. The meal that that he's provided with his own body and blood. And so if you count yourself among the sinners that Jesus would come and sit among, then you are welcome to this meal.